I think it's really focusing on how technology enhances the consumer or patient experience. So thinking about that mindset from the outset, I think that there's a piece around community education. Welcome to Series 3 of the Future Health Podcast, a podcast on the way we work, the work we do, and how technology will influence the future of work in New South Wales Health and the healthcare industry. We have an incredible lineup of guests this series, and we look forward to sharing it with you soon. Feel free to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. everyone, welcome back. Our guest today is Dr. Ben Hamer, lead for the future of work at PwC. So his passion is workforce planning and the future of work, and I'm very interested to learn his thoughts um, and dive a little bit more into that subject. Thank you, Ben, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Um, I was hoping you'd be able to give the audience uh, a little bit of an intro and tell us about yourself and what what your passion for the future of work really is. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Arisha. Um, so, um, Ben, as you've aptly said, um, I lead the future of work for PwC, which means um, everything from thought leadership and market research through to partnering with clients like New South Wales Health, as I have done around um, everything from workforce planning and workforce of the future through to that more integrated perspective around the future of work, where it's more than just people, um, where we're thinking about um, workplaces where we're thinking about alternative delivery models uh, and everything else in between. So that's my day job, um, but I do wear a few different hats. So um, I'm also on the board of the Australian HR Institute or ARI, and I'm an adjunct at Swinburne University Centre for New Work. Um, the other fun fact is I do host a podcast series exploring the future of work, and it's great to be on the other end here and not be the person having to ask the questions. Oh, that's, that's pretty. That's pretty funny. So you'll be an old hand at this, Ben. That's great. We'll um, we'll we'll get to hear from from you from the other side, I suppose. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So let's let's dive straight into it. Um, future of work. It's you know you're the lead for the future of work. Let's address the elephant in the room. I've asked a lot of my guests this question because it's here. It's a big disruption. It has fundamentally changed our future in many ways. COVID. What what has that meant from your point of view and the work you've been doing and the people you've been working with? How has COVID changed the future of work, I guess, is the question. I wanted to have like a snarky remark and be like, what's COVID? <laughs> but um, being being health, I probably should just kind of crack on with it. Um, so how has the future of work been affected by COVID? I would say that um, a lot of what we're talking about as it comes to the future of work right now isn't new. Um, I would say, though, that a lot of it has been accelerated and the urgency with which it's playing out um, has uh, has come about as well. I think it was something that we were all comfortable talking about, um, but as the name suggests, the future of work is in the future. Um, COVID very much made that now. So a couple of things that I think I've observed, um, particularly around what has accelerated or been brought forward, um, one of it, uh, one of the things would have been obviously around hybrid working, ways of working, um, and more flexible working. Um, and so naturally, we've seen um, a whole heap of people transition to working from home for roles that have um, afforded that. Um, and that, in and of itself, um, is a pretty significant shift as far as ways of working are concerned. 
Um, we've seen some organisations, uh, particularly those that had call centres in overseas uh, countries where there's lower cost economies like China, the Philippines, India, etc. Um, they've onshored those capabilities um, as a result of the global um, impact of COVID. And so that's again shifted those delivery models and the kind of workers that they engage. Um, we're seeing acute skills shortages, um, particularly because of um, the border closures and the impact that has on skilled migration. And so um, some really um, acute shortages are, are being felt in sectors like construction, infrastructure, healthcare being one of them as well. Um, and then a few others. I mean, the gig economy was one that we were talking about a lot pre-COVID. Um, some estimates were that uh, by 2030, 80% of the entire workforce will be gig work. Um, but then naturally, uh, COVID came, the market hit um, was, was very much front and centre and gig workers were often the first to go. Um, and it exposed the vulnerability that comes with gig work. I think that the, the more emerging generations um, traditionally don't value economic and financial stability and job security as much as previous generations. Um, that's been challenged. Um, but then the interesting thing that I think underpinning all of this is that we were talking about the robots coming to take our jobs. Um, COVID was actually the one that accelerated the future of work. But automation has also increased as part of that as well, because what history tells us is that in times of recession, we invest in technology. Technology makes us more efficient. Um, in the current market, organizations are finding ways that they can be more efficient. Um, and so, yeah, we're seeing a, a lot around technology and digital disruption at the moment as well. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, and particularly, I, so let's, uh, let's go a little bit off script, if you don't mind. Um, I want to dive into what you said there about skill shortages, because I think that's one of the, the sort of key things, um, particularly um, impacted, say, the university sector, where, you know, we haven't got overseas students coming in, and therefore that's then impacted. Do you think there's going to be a fundamental shift in, for example, health careers and that there will be a more, more of an uptake? Or is that something that we should be pushing, given that, you know, the the skill shortages may not necessarily go away tomorrow, even if we opened up? So is that something that health or, you know, Australia or whoever you want to call it, New South Wales, needs to push around addressing those skill shortages internally? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, there's a lot to it. I think that the main sentiment that you've just kind of ended on there is um, really reflective, though, of where things are at, which is we've potentially over-relied on skilled migration to fill critical roles and, and support industries for some time. Um, and now we're experiencing the brunt and the impact of that. So there is a, a focus around, well, how do we go about developing the local supply of talent, um, investing more in our tertiary and vocational education sectors? Um, I mean, part of, of what we've seen um, over the last 12 to 18 months is in a positive light, a re-evaluation of the importance and the value of health and healthcare workers. Um, and I think that goes a long way to supporting future generations entering the profession. Um, the, the challenge around how um, we'll go about attracting future healthcare workers is that I said earlier around how some uh, roles aren't necessarily afforded the ability to have um, you know, things like working from home. Um, it's also an, a sector that has felt the absolute 
um, most pressure and the intensity of the last 12 to 18 months as well. Um, and is quite conservative compared to other sectors and industries. And so as emerging generations are looking for uh, employers that are innovative, um, that embrace technology, that embrace flexible ways of working, the health sector is going to have to think about how they go about embedding that within their sector so that they can continue to attract future generations. Um, it'll be a challenging one, but definitely one that I think should be and is increasingly more of a focus in Australia. Mm, yeah. And I mean, and, and speaking of, because uh, we'll, we'll, we'll carry on from that when you talked about working from home. So obviously um, you host a podcast exploring the future of work at PwC. And one of the things you do talk about is the work from home experiment. I'm interested in your thoughts around whether we're still experimenting and like you said there are certain workforces that will fundamentally never be able to work from home so is it a question one about workforces that can work from home what does that mean and how can that be you know um, developed but two what does flexibility then mean for the rest of the workforce that doesn't have the luxury of being able to work from home yeah, so I'd say flexibility is the, the hot topic at the moment. Um, in terms of um, going, I guess, to, to the first part of that question around is it an experiment? I mean, I, I think it's fair to say it's definitely not anymore. Um, it's something that if you went two years ago and said to CEOs that the vast majority of your organisation will be in doing an entirely remote operation from their homes and living rooms, there is no way they would have had a bar of it. But then when their hand was forced, we've seen that it's actually been an entirely, um, largely successful um, experience. And so what we're seeing now is organisations thinking about what the new normal looks like. And we know that hybrid and hybrid working is part of that. Um, we did some research, 74% of Australian workers want to work hybrid across multiple places and spaces. Um, only 10% of workers want to be in an office five days a week. Um, so that's a fundamental shift and that's coming from the employee base. Um, conversely, you have um, examples in America, for example, the CEO of Goldman Sachs came out in the media and called working from home an aberration. Um, you have the CEO of Netflix who came out and said working from home is an entirely negative experience. Um, and so these uh, CEOs are trying to get people back into the office. and. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of nuance and complexity that underpins it. Um, some work is better done from home, some work is better done from an office. It's about finding what that right balance is for the organisation based on the work that needs to be done and designing teams and, and work weeks accordingly. Um, but, uh, you know, going to that point around flexibility, um, you know, it might be a little bit provocative to say, but coming out and, and, and saying we're really flexible, um, but you need to be in the office on a Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, that's not flexibility. Um, and so it's really unpacking and understanding why you want people to come back into the office, um, not just because you've got some vacant space sitting there and you feel like it's more productive to have people sitting at a desk. Um, what's the additional value that you get from that? Um, and there's some myth busting I've done around the whole, are we more productive working from home or not, which is quite fascinating to play out. Um, but the converse piece that you've mentioned is that there's a real large number of roles, arguably more roles that can't work from home. Um, what we're seeing is that for some organizations where they have that dual workforce of frontline and, and back office, 
there's this cultural tension that's playing out and that's manifesting um, because people who are frontline see that the ability to work from home is a luxury. It's a sign that the organisation trusts you. Um, and therefore, what does that say about the value of the work that I do? So, you know, within that, we're, we're seeing some organisations, um, uh, even within New South Wales government, that are trying to reorient the language towards choices. Um, because yes, you may not be able to work from home if you are a nurse who's frontline in a hospital, um, but there are choices around how you can design your work week um, in order to make it or to optimize that work week and to make it work better for you. So whether or not it's things like shift swapping, job sharing, um, putting in preferences around rosters, um, a whole range of other bits and pieces that um, it comes back to, yeah, choices. And so changing the language, changing the conversation um, so that it's more appropriate to meet those varying segments within the workforce. Yeah, and I, I think that's what that's what you've you sort of hit on there. It, it is really about choice, isn't it? And it's about the way you can work to the best of your ability versus I work in this office um, this day and I work, you know, from home those days. So, I, yeah, I, I'm interested in in hearing your thoughts. If we dive in a little bit more then to that workforce that's not able to work from home and talk about. Um, you know, skills and skill shortage. If we are trying to promote like a career in health, for example, obviously from New South Wales health perspective, we're, we're always interested in people and in particular areas. Um, how do you, how would you advise that communication? Because it's then, like you said, you, you can't offer a job that provides working from home or flexibility, but then it offers choice. So is, is that the way you see a promotion of a health career is it, it, it can be different depending on your individual circumstances? Yeah, I think what we, we need to do is get better at talking to our people and hearing them. Um, so asking people who are currently frontline workers, um, currently working um, sort of in hospitals saying, uh, what's afforded to you? What don't you have that you would like to have? What do you have that you would like more of? Understand that and then think about how do you amplify that as part of an employee value proposition. I think there is a component to it where the harsh reality is that if you choose a career that's frontline, you aren't going to be able to necessarily work from home like someone who isn't frontline. Um, and that's, again, a choice that gets made. Um, but it's about then thinking about how can you ramp up other levers that attract and retain talent? Um, so, for example, things around adoption of technology and innovation that I mentioned before. Well, that's going to attract people into the profession. So how do you make sure you do that? Um, thinking about, for example, within the context of um, health, the emergence or not the emergence, but the significant take up recently around telehealth, um, that creates new roles. Thinking about hospital in the home, thinking about the virtual hospital that we're seeing some some institutions pilot, um, they're exciting. They're, they're creating new roles, new ways of thinking about problems, new ways of doing things and servicing customers, multidisciplinary teams, thinking about um, how we work more collaboratively, which again is something we know that um, particularly emerging generations want and like, that development opportunity. It's thinking about um, what's in our control uh, that we can um, think about as we curate an employee value proposition that's beyond just working from home. 
Yeah, I think. And that's that's a great segue into what I wanted to ask you next, which is to dive into some of those emerging technologies. You've obviously mentioned telehealth, which had a significant uptake um, in the last 18 months because it was the only way to provide certain services safely. So in the next five to 10 years, let's not look too far into the future because then we'll talk about, you know, flying cars and whatnot. But in the next five to 10 years, what are some of the emerging technologies do you think where there are opportunities um, for the workforce to adapt um, or to enhance the workforce and how will they impact the future of work? Yeah, so I think um, firstly, sorry, sure, I might talk about just the, um, the the likelihood of adoption because I think from talking to clinicians um, specifically over the last few years, there's been, I guess, a degree of cynicism around um, the adoption of technology. And what I mean by that is, um, as a country, Australia significantly underinvests in technology from, you know, from federal government down. And um, when you look at uh, places like Germany, when you look at China, when you look at the US, um, significant advancements around, for example, robotic medicine and, and um, other bits and pieces, we don't see necessarily the impact of that right here and now. So you, you scroll on LinkedIn, you see, you know, funky articles on the news, and then you go, well, when's it going to hit us? Um, now, what we're seeing as far as the recent projections uh, around economic growth and looking at the federal and New South Wales intergenerational reports, they show that we're going to have, um, well, you have three key levers around economic growth. The first one's around participation. Um, and we know that with an aging population and an aging workforce, participation is forecasted to decline. The other one's population. And as a result of COVID, that's taken a massive hit. So population growth is not what we were expecting. So the only real way we can achieve significant economic growth is through productivity. And the main lever we have for productivity is automation and technology to make things more efficient. So while it hasn't necessarily been front and center in the past, I think over the next five to 10 years, we can expect to see a lot more of it. Um, and I think that artificial intelligence is gonna be um, a really big one in, in this space. I think we're already seeing it, um, but we'll definitely see a lot more. Um, part of it is around how it's used to uh, think about uh, early diagnoses and uh, more accurate diagnoses as well. Um, I was actually reading something um, that came from America and it was, I think, from the American Cancer Association. And they found that um, through uh, manual interpretations of mammograms, one in two healthy women were being misdiagnosed with breast cancer. Um, then through the adoption of artificial intelligence, um, they actually were able to use AI to interpret and read mammograms um, and found that they were uh, 30 times faster um, at coming up with the diagnosis and had 99% accuracy. So it's not just about how do we use technology to do things quicker, it's also how do we do it to do things better, which ultimately have a better patient experience and a better patient outcome. In that case, uh, it prevented misdiagnoses. It also meant that there were not unnecessary biopsies and things like that as well. Um, and we're also seeing in some adjacent spaces, not directly health, but health related, Things like, um, we'll say smart fridges in our homes in the future, more than what they are now, where, for example, it's tracking your food consumption from the fridge and it's giving you real-time feedback around how many calories you're consuming, um, what's the balance of nutrients and macros, and ultimately looking at how technology helps us live 
more um, healthier and sustainable lifestyles, which ultimately is used to prevent um, ill health and pressure on the health system uh, downstream as well. So I think there's something around that. I think we'll see more technology that is embedded and supporting ways of working as well. Um, so I mentioned before multidisciplinary teams and particularly if we're thinking about things like community-based care, um, how do we use technology to um, keep the patient at the center of what we do, minimize and mitigate the risks from the various handoffs that we have in those environments as well, um, and supporting people working outside of the hospital in more geographically distributed um, ways and environments. And then, I see blockchain playing a part in this as well. So one of the, the risks in all of this um, is obviously around data security. Um, and we've seen, um, you know, community sentiment around things like my health record, a degree of skepticism around that, um, the, the taboo word vaccinations, a degree of community skepticism around that. Um, and there's a broader distrust in institutions, traditional institutions within society as well. So health is such a, a, a sensitive topic, um, particularly when it comes to things like data and individual's da health data and data protection. And so blockchain is really seen as that technology that is able to provide the security around patient records, around medical supply chains, handoff of data points and whatnot as well, and the traceability of that. Um, so I think we'll, it might not necessarily be um, something that everyday patients and the community see day to day, um, but it will definitely be critical and increasingly important in the back end as well. Um, I think the final thing I'll end on on that is that when we talk around technology, um, we also have to think about the utilization of that technology. And so there's going to be a massive uplift that's required of healthcare workers around um, digital literacy and how do they leverage the technology that's available and making sure that we don't just lump it on healthcare practitioners to do outside of hours, um, but thinking about how we integrate it into workplace learning. Um, but even more than that, there's a piece around community upskilling. And so if we're trying to drive the uptake of telehealth, of virtual hospitals, we need to upskill the community, um, particularly vulnerable people within the community, so they're actually able to access and leverage those services. Yeah, and I mean, that's really interesting what you were saying there, Ben, because I think you, you sort of hit the nail on the head there when you mentioned patient outcomes, because clearly from for New South Wales Health, everything we do um, is about the patient and is about patient outcomes, but it's also then about value-based healthcare. So I think there's a perception, like you said, around, you know, we don't adopt these big technologies, but for us, as you know, as a country where, with a smaller population, it is about economies of scale. But when you mention something like um, AI interprets a mammogram, that can scare certain people, clinicians and patients, you know, or your fridge is monitoring your. So what you said there, again, spot on about educating clinicians and the communities, how do you think we could do that better to make it less scary and to, I guess, reassure them that the decisions are evidence-based? Because we're not just saying, you know, all AI is now going to uh, interpret all results where it's a but but it's difficult to have those conversations particularly for people who who don't come from a health background so if I'm a patient um, I I want a doctor to look at my results how do you have those conversations 
Yeah, so I think what's really important when we think about technology is thinking about the intersection of humans and technology. Um, so w when we talk about automation more broadly, and I'll start there, um, automation is about automating tasks. It's not about automating roles. And the, t the way in which we automate tasks is in order to make the clinician or the worker um, be able to focus on what makes them uniquely human. And in the context of healthcare, um, and if we take mammograms as an example, it's the ability to um, support the patient, enhance the patient experience, have the conversation with the patient. So whilst they're getting um, the findings from the AI, it's not like the person's talking to a robot who's telling them the outcome of that and who's working through a treatment plan. Um, and so I think it's really focusing on how technology enhances the consumer or patient experience. So thinking about that mindset from the outset, I think that there's a piece around community education um, because it, 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 to your point, there's a lot of, there is a lot of mistrust, but also um, uh, just uh, a, a, what you don't know, a fear of what you don't know. And how do we actually try and, um, you know, be a little bit clearer around that? We're not first movers, as I said. So, um, you know, looking at case studies from other jurisdictions internationally where um, we can talk using evidence to say this isn't the first time we're trialling this. Um, this is, you know, much more effective. Here's the data that underpins it and being able to communicate that. So there is that trust um, in the technology. And then also ensuring that and providing confidence that there is a workforce who's regulating that technology as well. Um, so when we talk about, you know, how some roles will be impacted and will decline as a result of technology, there's a corresponding increase of roles that emerge because of that technology. And a lot of those uh, people and roles are governing to make sure the AI is doing what it says it does. Um, and so, yeah, it's around regulation, it's around communications, um, it's around using case studies, I think around pilots as we introduce this technology as well, so it's not as confronting by doing a wide sweeping uh, adoption or implementation. And it's really a commitment of um, the, the government, the public sector, the private sector, um, academic institutions coming together um, to really try and drive this agenda collectively. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's interesting when you, when you talk about, you know, um, that there are, um, uh, I, I guess the bureaucracy is not the right word, but there are checks in place, um, for things. So, and it, it, linking it back to what you said there about data, because I think that's been one of the things that's challenged a lot of people around, accuracy of data and that there's data everywhere. There's data sets on the internet now, you know, everyone is collecting data, but fundamentally it's what sits behind that data, the meaning. So with all of these new technologies that are coming in, there's all this new data that then sits on top of that. And as a clinician, you just, you have limited amount of time each day and you want to provide patient care. So whilst the technology is there to help you, you don't want it to get in the way. So what what do you think we need to do in order to find a balance with that, where we still want to get that data because it's going to inform future, it's going to be evidence for future decision-making clinically and, you know, for planning. But how do we find the balance and how do we not put additional burden on our clinicians in order to be able to do that? Yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. The irony in it, though, is that if they were to actually... Um, 
uh, ride the wave and to leverage the data that's there and the technology that's there, it will make their job easier and that's the intent of it. Where the challenge and where the rubber hits the road is around change management. Um, I think that we don't fully consider how we roll out these uh, new technologies in a way that supports clinicians, that doesn't add to workload, but that eases workload. Um, so there's something in there around the change management of the transition. There's something around reimagining process. Um, you can't just do what you've always done and then just throw a new technology in there and not alter all the peripherals and interdependencies and think about the impact it has on um, sort of downstream activity as well. Um, an example of that in a sort of more common setting is, you know, working from home. If you were to think about running a workshop that you would run a workshop in a, in a physical office, you can't just all of a sudden pick it up and then run it on a, a video call and expect to have the same experience and the same outcome. It's going to be clunky. It's not going to be as engaging. You have to reimagine what virtual workshops and virtual collaboration looks like. So similarly, when we're implementing a new technology, what's the way in which processes and ways of working are, 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 are impacted and how do we plan for that? I, I don't think we're great at that. And I don't think we're great at actually providing the capacity um, to unlearn and relearn. And I think that's really important around um, when we think about it in the context of clinicians as well. The, the training that clinicians uh, and particularly medical professionals go through is significant. And it's, there's a lot of tradition, there's a lot of legacy, it's years upon years upon years of study. It's really, really difficult to then ask them to unlearn something and relearn something else. And I don't think we appreciate that because the, the system hasn't afforded it. Um, and so we need to think about how do we better support those individuals to unlearn and to relearn and provide them the time and capacity to do that. So to my point earlier, you can't have a, a doctor who's worked their shift and then once they finish their shift, say, PS, implementing this new technology at night, on the weekend, in your spare time, brackets, they don't have spare time. Um, can you just figure it out and then use it on the job? We need to make sure that we're providing those avenues and opportunities for, for learning and development. Um, and that's a broader thing around on-the-job learning. You can't just assume that it's going to happen. You have to craft the on-the-job learning experience. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think that's your point there, um, Ben, is um, spot on where it's like you figure this out um, and and then it'll work magically. So, yeah, I, I, I fully understand what you're saying there around just expecting people and the, the amount of time our clinicians spend um, before they become a clinician and then after as well. So it, it I think you're right. It's really about designing education so that it takes the least amount of time, but has the most impact in terms of learning outcomes. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. So let's talk in the next little while. Um, what, what's, what should, is there something that New South Wales Health do you think should be doing or adopting any technologies that we haven't done? And what are the opportunities say in the next five to 10 years? What, what can we do? Can I kind of cheat my way out? Because <laughs> when I think about the things that, that, that the, the thing, well, you said one thing and you said technology. Can I say two things and then not technology? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, let's not call it technology. Let's say opportunities for improvement in the future, towards the future of work. How about oh, that? Spoken like a true HR professional, <laughs> Sarisha. Um, 
So, uh, so the two things that come to mind, the first one is, um, recrafting the employee value proposition. It's something, it's my absolute hobby horse at the moment. So you're going to have to forgive me, but, um, what we're seeing play out live in the labor market right now, and I'm going to talk non-health for a second because health is obviously different, um, but we're seeing record low unemployment. Um, so the, the July um, 2021 unemployment was at 4.6%. So it hasn't been that low since before um, the 2009 global financial crisis. So this is huge, noting that there's been Sydney and Melbourne and, and other lockdowns, but still huge. We have a record number of job vacancies where outside of health, um, organizations are absolutely struggling to get people in. They have the funding, they have the position sitting there, but they can't get them. Health naturally has some challenges, but, but not necessarily um, in the same way. Um, and we're seeing a high degree of mobility in the labor market where people are just chopping and changing and, and, and shifting jobs. On top of that, in Australia, between 40 to 50% of workers are currently thinking about leaving their job. So what that means is that the balance of power has shifted from the employer to the employee. Um, and that means that employee value propositions really need to be going back to our earlier conversation, bottom up. They need to be employee led and employee designed. Um, in the context of New South Wales Health, I think that New South Wales Health is increasingly competing with um, non-traditional competitors. I mean, if you look at some of the adjacent sectors around disability and aged care, I mean, there's a lot of competition now for, for nurses, particularly as aged care looks to up the accreditation of the people working in the space. Um, but nurses, we're thinking uh, pre-COVID, a shortage of 130,000 nurses in Australia by 2030. That's probably going to increase because of the skilled migration impacts as well. Um, and so how do we attract people into the nursing profession? Um, thinking more broadly around how do we attract um, people to work in health more broadly and particularly in those support and enabling functions as well. So I think the employee value prop proposition piece is really critical and um, bringing into that that notion of for frontline workers, if they don't have the whole thing around flexibility, let's think a little bit more creatively around what that EVP is that's not just around working from home. So, so that's one. I think the other one then is thinking about what we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months. The impact on the health workforce has just been so significant. Um, and I just have so much admiration for everyone who's working in health from frontline to the enabling functions as well. What we've seen is some real innovation around ways of working, things that we would have said we're too conservative or that's just not the way we do things. We've managed to push past some of that. What I want to make sure we do is we don't uh, all of a sudden, you know, in, in you know a couple of years time, look back and go, oh, that was a COVID thing. I want to make sure that those real positives, we sustain the momentum of that moving forwards. One of those things that I think we're starting to see more of is thinking about um, the roles that we have in health and how we might um, redesign and evolve some of those roles. Um, so for example, there's some research that says that doctors are overqualified for 70% of the tasks that they do. 
and it's not too dissimilar when you look at nurses as well. So how do we empower and enable clinicians to operate to the top of their license, top of qualification? How do we think about some of those tasks that they're overqualified for? And how do you create new roles so that you're able to actually then bring in people who don't need to have a three or five or further uh, qualification around it? It could be potentially a six-month vet qual. How do you create new roles that enables a greater supply of talent, which decreases the demand on the healthcare workforce? And it's going to make sure then that we're also operating more efficiently and effectively as well and takes off some of that pressure that we were already feeling in health before COVID. So I would say they're the two ones, reimagining and sustaining the momentum um, from COVID, but evolving the roles within healthcare and then reimagining the EVP as well. Your point there about the EVP is is really um, going to be significant given the situation we're currently in and how we look to the future. So I'd like to ask you, I think we're, we're, we're close to running out of time, but I'd like to ask you one final question, seeing as you, you brought it up. What is the future of work beyond COVID-19? How do we... How do we sustain everything we've done to date and how do we expand on that to, to, to be the best we can be in the future? Yeah, when you said because you brought it up, I was like, oh, my word, what did I say? <laughs> um, so, no, that's, that's, that's a fair question. Uh, so what is the future of work beyond COVID-19? Um, so I think it's a bit of a summary of what we've been talking about. Um, the future of work is hybrid um, for those that are in roles that afford that, that hybrid ability. Um, the future of work will be uniquely human, but supported by technology. So the robots aren't coming to take our jobs, but there will be a lot more technology, automation, AI, um, and it will make us better at our jobs as humans. So it's about how do we embrace the handoff rather than resist it? Um, one thing that I think that's, that hasn't been said, but, but's important, particularly in a health setting, um, is that uh, by 2031, we're expecting to have 1.1 million uh, fewer people in Australia than if COVID-19 hadn't happened. So a massive hit on the population because of border closures. Um, a lot of those tend to be migrants who are of working age who move to Australia as well. So without that intake, that migration intake, what we're going to see is um, an aging population greater than we previously anticipated. And we're also going to see less taxpayer funding to fund the required standard of care proportional to that age demographic. Um, and so that's going to force healthcare to think more innovatively, think differently, um, embrace technology, embrace new ways of working, um, and think about how we can drive efficiency in that sense um, because of some of those broader uh, demographic evolutions. Um, interestingly, we're going to see, as I said, an aging workforce, but much more millennials in the workforce. Um, by 2030, up to 50% of the workforce will be millennials. And so we're going to see a greater focus on transparency, sustainability, um, ESG, so environment, um, sustainability and governance. Um, and so that sort of social impact um, agenda. So um, as part of the EVP, employers increasingly looking at, well, what do you stand for as a brand? And that's orienting some of their career decisions, uh, as well as more of a focus on things like career development as well. So um, that's going to, to change a lot of it. 
um, and then uh, a, a, an increasingly digitally literate workforce. I hope a workforce that um, has equal opportunity, a more diverse workforce. Um, if we think about um, some of the gains we've made in the last 10 years and projecting that forwards um, and a more inclusive workforce, but that's not gonna come without um, a lot of effort, a lot of due diligence, um, and uh, a lot of focus around making sure that we get there. It's not just going to happen. Yeah, no, th and that's a that's a great point to close off on there, Ben. That we do we need to make it happen. So, thank you so much for your time today, Ben. It's been really interesting and fascinating. I hope I hope you've enjoyed it, but you've certainly given us a lot to think about. No, thanks, Sarisha. I can't believe how quickly the time's gone. So um, I can only assume it was uh, was a good chat. So that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for joining me on the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to like, share and subscribe on whatever platform you're on right now.